Greetings, friends. You're here on the great indoors. And today was supposed to be the recording of another Sunday special, which is where I sit down with uh, my co-pastor, Mike Williamson, from Leamington United Mennonite Church, and we discussed the sermon that we heard on Sunday. So I was the preacher on Sunday, and I had a sermon called Heaven Can Wait. And turns out Heaven Can Wait can wait, because Mike and I just got into some chat about comedy and preaching and what they have to give the church and the world. And I hope you enjoy it. I certainly did. And I know Mike did. So um, enjoy. Let's do it. Hello? Hello? Can you hear me? Pastor Mike? Yes. This is Pastor Zach. (laughs) Are we recording? We're live. Oh, okay. (laughs) Do you edit this after? (laughs) Absolutely not. (laughs) It's raw. Yeah, that's what it's called. It's called Sunday Raw. Sunday Night Raw. Sunday Raw. Didn't Eddie Murphy have a... Eddie Murphy. Comedy special. Yeah, he did. I think he Cobra. wore red leather. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, mm-hmm. yeah. Ice cream. Yeah. 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 Dude, other comics of the... What about... Did you ever... in As a comedian, <laughs> or in your knowledge in the world of comedy, um, what is your view of prop comics? <laughs> Are they like the lowest of the low? I think in 10 years... There will be a new prop comic. But I think prop comics need to lay low for now. Do you remember? I remember an episode of Seinfeld where they're at the comedy club and Jerry kind of throws shade at a prop comic. Yeah, they're basically a step above ventriloquists. (laughs) What about um, Gallagher, that guy who smashed things with a giant hammer like watermelon? He's be- he's before my time. I have seen there's a Gallagher spinoff I've seen on the Chappelle show actually Black Gallagher. <laughs> I, have, I haven't seen that. Go find go find Black Gallagher. It's in season two of the Chappelle show. Okay. And it's real. But uh, I'll tell you, I, I picked up a paper yeah. in Detroit the other day. Mm-hmm. Um, in the before time, and I saw that Carrot Top is still touring. I was just gonna. Say, I was just gonna mention the most famous prop comic of all time. Carrot Top. Carrot Top. Mm-hmm. Who's still? I guess is wow touring. Went to Detroit or went to Michigan. I thought he I had. I thought he had a Vegas show though. I thought he was a full time Vegas guy. There is a brief moment in time when I was maybe like 10 Mm -hmm. where Carrot Top was one of the funniest people in the world oh yeah (laughs) so (laughs) there you go you can edit all this out nope (laughs) I will not okay alright alright we're unashamedly these are unashamed views of prop comedy I'm not ashamed they are I don't have to hide this I just 
I, it's all, it's just fascinating to me as, as on this little detour is, uh, what brings about different forms of comedy. So like, what is, <laughs> what experience makes someone want to be a prop comic, right? I think it's, I was thinking about, um, the structure of jokes and premises the other day and how, the the premise of a joke and the punchline of the joke are these attempts at selling the audience something and you know that they've bought it when they laugh right because you can talk about outrageous things in a normal tone without setting the scene without building the scaffolding that you need and it will fall flat because people won't find it funny they'll find it offensive or disturbing but if you put the pieces in place and build the world that they can believe in something terrible, I'm trying to think of a good example that's not uh, outrageously offensive in this context, but um, hmm, hmm, hmm. Nope, nothing appropriate is coming to mind. <laughs> but um, if it, it's all about this offer and return and the offer is the premise and a punchline and the return is the jo- is the laughter but you have to make the audience believe in the joke they have to believe in the premise that you're pitching them because if not they'll say that's ridiculous or that's offensive or that's hurtful and that's that's where like a f- offense comes in where people aren't willing to suspend their their disbelief for the sake of the joke to believe that somebody is telling them things that are funny because you're allowing it to be funny because you're buying the premise that's being sold to you. Um, but with prop comedy, I think it's, yeah, it's like, a it's something that the prop comic can easily sell or they've, they've worked on how to sell that particular style of comedy and I think that in a certain in certain contexts, prop comedy still could have a place. But the prop comic, like you, you'll see comedians who do all kinds of things with mic- the microphone, and effectively become a prop comic because they can. Uh, that's true. They can do something with a microphone that somebody hasn't thought of. Often it's phallic, but. Um, <laughs> So that, that's, that's pop comedy, but Carrot Top has a has a tickle trunk full of like cell phones glued to microwaves and things like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, here's here's a nice segue. So uh, Will Willowman says the stand up comic is the sibling to the preacher. So how's that for a segue to your sermon? Well, I have done both. So uh, yeah. I can say that they are they're pretty close together and they both require bravery um, but the comedy club is far more forgiving than the congregation <laughs> I actually that um, I yeah I believe that it's true it's true you can you can say outrageous you can make outrageous blunders on an open mic week after week and people will still listen and you'll still get the response that you want. But in preaching, um, there's a certain amount of seriousness that people expect. 
And I don't know. I've thought about the potential of doing an entire sermon, like a 15, 20-minute sermon that is mostly jokes. But the point of the sermon is not entertainment. And the or the, the purpose, maybe not point, but the if you can bring home a strong enough point through humor, and sometimes and comedy often does that. Dave Chappelle again is a great uh, a great guy when it comes to great not a great guy, but he has a lot of skill at bringing um, uh, societal challenges to the fore in the form of jokes, thus like allowing us to there become palatable issues of racial violence, sexual violence. We are will listen to somebody talk about them in a way that kind of breaks down our mm, taboos around them or something and allows us to consider it in a new way. And I mean, with sexual violence and racial violence, these are terrible things in society, but when we laugh at them, sometimes the pain is diffused and we can approach them with new eyes. Um, so could you do that with something in the Bible? I wonder if there are things in the Bible that we just don't want to talk about because they don't... Like, how much, Like we could do a whole series called Rapes in the Bible. <laughs> uh, you know what I mean? Like, uh, and, and other terrible things that occur in the Bible, genocide and whatnot, where um, if you accept that, you know, if you, if, you, if you take the premise of putting men on the side of the, the banks of the river, having them recover from all circumcising themselves, and that's when you go in and kill them all, well, if you dress up that premise and you create some dialogue within that premise and you build a world around it, you, you build a situation within a world where telling an army of men to circumcise themselves is not outrageous, right? We all have to enter into that world, though, to start finding the comedy in it. And sometimes it's just tweaking our world a little bit, but sometimes, in that case, it's putting us into an entirely different world. Do you know that story in the Bible? Yeah, 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 I do. I think they, they want some wives. They, the, another group comes, and they want to get wives from the Israelites, and they say, okay, well, first, your army has to be circumcised, and then while they're all recovering after, like, I don't know if they just figured out how to circumcise themselves or if they just had, like, a little tutorial video or what they had to do that. But they all went and cir- circumcised themselves <laughs> and then went and sat with ice packs on their bodies and uh, got slaughtered. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah. Um, there's, I think like there's, I think, I don't know if it's like the second Sunday of Easter or, um, it's sometime around now, but like it's, it's, it's one of the Sundays of Easter traditionally is devoted to sort of like this kind of holy humor and it's, um, Oh, it's sort of like, it comes out of like the sense of like, um, in the later New Testament writings, they're almost making a mockery of death because Christ has defeated death. Mm -hmm. And so there's this whole idea of like the Easter laughter and, um, and they use, they used to do. Um, I think it's on the second Sunday of Easter where the minister would use jokes and double like 
double entendres and innuendo and even sexual innuendo to mock death and incite Easter laughter. Because I think they say that um, laughter is sort of like becomes the symbol for Easter. I think Pope Benedict, Pope, Pope Benedict talked right. about Easter laughter being highlighted as sort of like, because like people who are free have time to laugh and they're redeemed and they're no longer afraid, sort of. You have the randomest quotes for people. <laughs> you have the randomest knowledge of... Well, it is, it is Easter, right? Okay, it is. I guess you read about it. It makes sense, though. I, I was thinking about that. I'm like, that's true. Like, um, like the despair of like Good Friday and Lent is over. It's sort yep. of this... The powers have been unmasked, I guess. Yeah. Well, and I think like the... I don't know where seriousness comes from, but seriousness seems to be the the opposite of comedy and um, propriety and boundaries and... I mean, boundaries is not a good word because that's that has... A, um, boundaries of what you're allowed to say... Um, what you're allowed to joke about? Could you could you juggle could you juggle pieces of communion bread before handing it out? <laughs> no. Could you shoot Could you shoot communion bread out of a t-shirt cannon? No. <laughs> well, it's funny how like you know here at like tra- traditionally there's this place for laughter and comedy during you know. Easter season, but it just seems like comedy is sort of absent as an art form in church. Do you know what I mean? Or it, or it's and at it's, churches on Wednesday nights at eight p.m. and it's not very good. Yeah, and, and it's it's strange given the fact that comedy really is like I think this is what Willimon's getting at when preaching is connected to comedy because. I think he says they're siblings because they're both forms of, um, at their root, forms of truth-telling, right? Right. And and his big thing is is the, the bane of every church is boring preaching. Mm. Just like, like uh, comedy fails if it's boring, right? You imagine. <laughs> um, but yet churches will sort of tolerate, as you were saying, churches will tolerate poor preaching and boring preaching, but you wouldn't tolerate a bad comic, right? Like you boo them. <laughs> I'm yeah, not saying we should be I'm not saying we should be booed <laughs> from the pulpit, but there there's the there's the weird I don't know, there's there's a weird overlap there. Well part of comedy is the the process and that's something that we really don't see in comedy as as consumers of comedy. Is the, is the huge process that goes into putting together a Netflix special or mm-hmm. you know even when I was a kid I grew up on watching Just for Laughs and there would be like um, you know you're in Montreal yeah. they've, they've got the Just for Laughs festival and I would see you know Jeremy Hotz comes to mind Dave Chappelle comes to mind different comics who would go on that stage and do uh, a five minute set to a theater full of people and, you know, you don't even realize how long it took them to get to that five minutes of material and the years they spent in 
like clubs and open mics and bars and different kinds of shows for them to get to be able to walk onto the stage of a packed theater at a comedy festival. And that's, that's the Montreal Comedy Festival. That's a huge one. But um, I know people who have submitted for the Winnipeg Comedy Festival, which you know, maybe is something in Manitoba is something in like a little bit further West, but I don't know anybody outside of, uh, amateur comedians who even know that there is a Winnipeg comedy festival in this area or where I'm from, but everybody knows about just for laughs. So getting on a just for laughs, even though seeing it as a kid, it's just, Oh, I thought the guy just went out there and talked and made people laugh because he's just a funny guy but it's like he's been working on that or she's been working on that for a long time to get it to a place where it's it's performable and it's actually funny and I think the the difference one of the differences between the preaching and comedy as far as um, technically would be that in preaching we're we're always trying to say it's like we're, I don't know if we're always trying to say something new about about something old do you know what I mean? Like we're always rooted, we're rooted in the, in the scripture, we're rooted in the Bible, we're rooted in Jesus, and we're rooted in tradition as well. And so these are all things that have already come before us and already happened. And one of the things about comedy that I think is, has always been happening since it started in, um, you know, like stand-up comedy is a pretty American thing. And I think it started in like the, like Lenny Bruce is a pioneer of comedy. But there's, they're always pushing forward. They're pushing society forward in a way that's different than what I think a lot of times in Christian preaching, we're kind of resisting that forward push. We're resisting that, like that, uh, insatiable hunger for progress and something new and something different because we're, we're trying to help people see the wisdom of the past and, the, and, and the Bible, too, is like, it's all about return, right? The Hebrew word shuv, return to me, is what God is calling of Israel. Repentance is about turning around, um, if you read it that way. But it's not about what's forward and what's next. It's about how do I rest in what already is. And I, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think... I think um yeah, I think we're what we're another way of thinking about it is we're we're trying to say, in some ways, we're we're trying to say this the same thing every Sunday in a different way each Sunday. I think there's some truth to that. I, I know some people. I think Eugene Peterson once said. Um, his son told him after when he was retiring that his dad only had so like something like three or four sermons. Hmm. And Eugene Peterson was offended at first because he was like, well, I've been preaching every Sunday for over 30 years, which is, you know, thousands of sermons. But then he was reflecting and he was like, I guess though in, in his, he only was, pastor at one church his whole career and he, he came to the conclusion I guess I really was only at its core trying to say the same thing each Sunday um, uh, sort of this core truth about who who God is mm-hmm. um, and I've sort of noticed that even in my own 
work as time goes on. I mean, of course we talk about different things and we tell different stories and, but then like, uh, you know, at its core, what are we trying to say each, each Sunday? And it probably, you probably could distill that to, you know, three or four things over the course of a career, I think. Yeah. And uh, something that I would say, what are we trying to do in preaching? Also, like, let me I'll add a southern element here. In comedy, a, a, a big struggle maybe is reputation. Like, I think for a comic, you like to be successful is to be liked enough that people will return, people will buy tickets, people will tune in, people will look for you and listen to you, and. For some comics, they appeal to a wide range. For other comics, they appeal to a, a niche range. Um, but they're ultimately... There's an image of that comedian on stage. There's a stage persona they often bring, and it's about selling that product to people. So the product is the comedy, is the comic, whereas for preaching... We, we would often be critical of personality cult churches where the church is big and successful because their pastor is, you know, uh, they have their this particular style. Maybe they have a particular message. Maybe they have a particular image or they're aligned with a particular um, tradition. And it, whatever it is, often we're critical of that though. And maybe that's because we're not them and we have our own thing about it but we're not selling ourselves we're not it's not about people liking me and uh you know i'm not teeing up a book deal by preaching at at the church i preach at at lumc i'm not trying to get famous or um gain a following as a preacher whereas if i was to really sit back and focus on comedy that's exactly what I'd be trying to do. I'd be trying to get more followers on my page. I'd be trying to get more shows set up where people are coming to see me. I'd be trying to sell tickets. I'd be trying to make money so that I could continue to do it. Um, and so that will, that will change how we talk about what we talk about. And, um, I feel like I've gone two steps too far here, but, uh, that, that's a nuance between comedy, a distinction rather between comedy and, preaching where ultimately we're not pointing to ourselves. We're not there for self-promotion. Um, but the, what we're doing in, in preaching, I think, you know, we're proclaiming, you know, we're, we're pointing back to Jesus and the gospel and saying, this is something you can stake your life on. But I think there's also an element of, we're trying to raise people's awareness and as you said, like we're talking about the same thing in different ways. And ultimately, like, are we allowing ourselves to talk about all of it and say that this is all in the realm of God? All of it, all of creation, all of your life, your work, your hobbies, your interests, your passions, your wardrobe, your, your shopping schedule, your, your parenting, your neighboring, your going to the grocery store. All of this is under the reign of God and all of it is worthy of like thinking, thinking, 
through a Jesus lens, maybe is a way to put that. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Well, and I, you know, going back to, I, you know, the scenario described that you described where, you know, the the comedian has an image to cultivate. um, That's really similar to. It just reminds me of even when the New Testament was being written, you didn't necessarily have comedians, but you had like people who practiced rhetoric for a living and would travel and made their money by giving speeches and teaching. But like they had to cultivate the same thing, like an image, and it was based on their performative prowess and their ability and how well they were. able to entertain um and especially in a culture that was you know very image driven and had a lot to do with how you projected strength like if you bumbled uh, or mumbled or had an um or ah in your speech then they would <laughs> they would you would you know you would be rubbish at it and i think um out of that i think that explains some of the some of the things you read in the new Testament and, um, because people are attracted to that. And then, uh, cause I personally think someone like the apostle Paul, I don't think he was a good preacher in terms of like cult culture, what they were expecting. Like we have the story of acts where he's going on and on and someone falls asleep and falls out the window. Right. Right. Um, and we have this story from Corinthians where they don't really want to hear from Paul um, because there's other sort of better uh, teachers. And I think it's because probably Paul wasn't very, on a societal level, according to you know the practice of rhetoric. Mm-hmm. I don't think he was very good, necessarily. And that's where, like, it's this dual-edged sword, because I said, you know, preaching shouldn't be boring. Um Yet there's this sort of, at least for Christians, we believe that there's more happening in this moment, this declarative moment when we're talking about God's word. I forget who said it. Uh, Maybe it's in like the canons of Dort or something. But there's this phrase that says um, the, the, the preaching of the word of God becomes the word of God. And that's not the sense that, you know, the preacher is hierarchical and he's the king and whatever he says is sort of divine words. I look at it more like the preacher can be anyone in some ways coming in vulnerability and weakness and it's not necessarily reliant on their rhetorical prowess, right? God can take words that someone is speaking and make them his own with great power. I, I, I had this one moment where I heard this story where uh, there was um, someone was visiting a church in the summer and, um, and they said that the, the sermon was really sort of dry and not very good. And they turned to the person next to them and sort of was like, whoa, what did you think of that sermon? And, and the woman was weeping because she said, that's exactly what I needed to hear. And it's sort of like, so obviously it wasn't dependent on the person's 
speaking ability, right? Mm -hmm. God used those words to some effect. Yeah. And that's maybe uh, a really inefficient way of preaching. (laughs) (laughs) You know, at least one, at least one, at least one person liked it. Well, you know, (laughs) maybe just have a private conversation. Um, I think it, I think it just goes to show that the, in the end, the agency is not our own, right? right? I mean, we can, I mean, we could, you could have, you could have, I guess, you could have the opposite and have someone who's really well-trained and, like, you could have an, a Hollywood actor go up and it, I guess it could just fall flat. Exactly. Right? I was just going to yeah. say, you could have an amazing orator and their their message or the content is just drivel. Mm-hmm. I think you should do a stand-up comedy sermon. I think we need to reclaim some of these forms of, of like, it's funny because we're actually reclaiming something that used to be done. Hmm. I'm about to sneeze. You could call it <laughs> Balaam's ass. <laughs> could call it that, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. There'd be there'd be some pretty good stories in the Bible that you could just just drag the jokes right out of them. There's lots of there's lots of great stuff. The guy falling asleep, falling out the window. There's a joke just waiting to happen. A lot of one liners. You get a lot of one liners in sermons, and I've I've often just put jokes only at the beginning of the sermon as kind of the. Uh, that's an oratorical thing of like get their attention with a laugh, right? Start with a joke. They'll laugh. Once they laugh, they relax. Once they're relaxed, they can trust you. Once they trust you, you can lead them through the logic of your sermon. Um, My approach is usually to crush them with depressing news. Yeah, you're always like, hi, welcome to a good new day. Now, in the newspaper I read, 42 people were slain. (laughs) This is bad. God is good. That's... (laughs) That, well, that's I, that, that is sort of my my basic approach. only only in the sense of um, um, I, I, actually this is a good point to say context is everything. I, I so I've learned to do that in in our my current context at RUMC only because community wise we tend to be overly optimistic and naive about the human condition because here in Leamington we tend to be sheltered from the dangers and problems of the world around us so I like to (laughs) like a hammer (laughs) shatter that illusion sometimes that um, the world is not okay Um, But I only do that because uh, to underscore the need for a God to save and also the good news that there is a God who has saved. But um, Hmm. the context is everything. In another context where people are aware of those deeper realities, you maybe don't need to do as much as that. Although maybe you do in the sense of you're listening to their own pain or responses, but... But I'm sure if you spoke to a if you spoke to a social worker in Leamington, they would not have a sort of sheltered way of understanding the no. world. No, they they would see 
the pain and the, the tragedy that's right here. And, um, we could talk about that. I mean, the big, the big things like if we talk about Nova Scotia, that in Nova Scotia on the weekend, there was a huge, I don't even know if there was, if it was a shooting, I didn't even see the word gun in anything I read, but a guy killed 17 yeah, people. Yeah, it was just shooting. Um, yeah, I assumed as much, but you know, that's a, that's a tragedy on a scale that you just don't even want people to ever comprehend. Mm-hmm. Um, to, to jump back a step to comedy and preaching, there's a certain edginess that's required of comedy, I think. It's either an edginess or a silliness, and I don't think either of them... I think they make people uncomfortable in church because people are hung up about propriety. Mm. Right? And if you allow yourself to be too silly and to laugh at something that's too silly in church, it's somehow improper and it's offensive um, and it, it, it slights God in people's minds. Um, and it may be... It, it may be an environmental thing where if you were in, you know, a ba- the basement of a rec center and that was your church meeting space, well, you know, it's a little bit more uh, profane. Yeah. But then in a, sa- in, a, in a space that is designed to have the appearance of uh, sacredness, when theologically we would not hold to the idea of like a sacred space um, in a real no. sense, right? Right. Um, we we still get caught up with that, and maybe that's that's imminent frame stuff where it's right in front of us, and it's it's built through and with tradition that makes us sort of bend in certain ways that normally we don't. Um, people say it all the time, all the time. I hear people, they'll say something and then they'll correct somebody and say, you're in a church. You can't say that. Or, um, I don't want to go there because if I go there, God's going to strike, strike lightning on the place. If I walk into a church and I always tell people if, if God wants to kill you, he just will. You don't have to, you don't have to go to church for that to happen. Funny for a place where sort of truth should all be laid bare that there's, you know, you can't say that here. <laughs> yeah, you can't, you can't, you can't say what you normally say. You have to pretend here. You have to pretend. You have to pretend you don't say the word shit. Yeah. You, one of the things I was thinking. Do you think comedy, though, as a has a has potential for being a tool for better? explaining you know the story in scripture the bible I say that because as you said earlier there's a lot of there's a lot of weird things that happen in the bible and like I think of this really famous essay that Karl Barth wrote called it's very short um, the strange new world of the bible and how he had never really despite being a professor and pastor for a long time, it wasn't until he entered into this strange world that he really encountered God for the first time. 
but that strangeness can be off-putting and we don't really like we don't understand or because it's strange and because there are things about Christianity or faith that are strange we don't really engage them but yet I, I guess it's a fine line but comedy could have the potential of of telling some of those stories or explaining those things in a new way that we're more receptive to it because then I mean I think of laughing about something is disarming but and then we're able to receive the truth in that rather than coming about about it from the other angle of this is so strange I don't understand you know yeah and I, I think I'm trying to think about how comedians interact with our world and one of the one of the most like acutely aware comedians I think is Jerry Seinfeld um, and I think about I've used I've talked about his bit with donut holes before where he talks about he like what's the point what was the truth he's getting at in the donut hole bit and the donut hole bit is basically you know why do we call it donut holes how can you have a donut hole and a donut hole if you don't know in America is like a timbit what we have in Canada it's a ball that from the it's it's what was where the hole now is in a donut it's a piece of dough but it's called a donut hole but a hole is the absence of what is around the hole so how can you have this thing called a donut hole um so he just what's he doing he's playing with language and logic and um maybe he's pointing out how blindly people accept terminology from marketers where we don't call up the yeah. donut place and go, are you insane? You can't sell something called a donut hole. That does not make any sense. Maybe that's, maybe that's what he's pointing out. But, can you, and, but what he's done is he's entered so deeply into the world around him that he's, he's sort of becoming critical of things that so many other people don't even notice or notice and blindly accept where he's choosing to question the premise of a donut hole. He has not accepted that premise. Um, right. And he'll, and he'll break down why he hasn't. And, and it's, and it's writing that out. It's putting down the why and it's finding every possible angle you can take. And so when he does that bit, uh, he might enter into, um, this is a, a rhetorical technique that's in James, and that's the inter the interlocutor, right? There's that um, the the false second person who you're making up their argument and you're arguing against it, right? You say, but I say. You say this, but I say this. Um, you know, or what if what if one of you were to say this, and then you know you name the argument? Well, I would say this, and so you're sort of anticipating what the audience is thinking about what you're saying. But if you're a comic, and you can do that really well, then you can f- then you can almost like because comedy is about surprise, right? I think I think mostly it's about surprise. It's about building tension, and then giving the punchline which relieves all the tension really quickly and we laugh so then is the Easter story of the empty tomb the funniest story of all time 
<laughs> a pretty big surprise, <laughs> right? Yeah, I would Maybe say that. Like, like, put yourself, Bible. put your, like, put yourself in the, the. I think one of the weird things that happens when we read the Bible, and I think this is kind of similar to what I was saying about the sacred spaces that we build, and, and there's tradition and culture and and history all around them, right? Where when I'm reading the words of Jesus, I don't have a Bible on me, but. Um, uh, okay, like, blessed are the poor in spirit. Like, you read it that way. In my mind, in my head, Jesus is always like, blessed are the poor in spirit. <laughs> like, a, what is it? Monty Python's The Life of Brian. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like that voice, but always very yeah. serious and very straightforward and flat and not very expressive and just kind of like totally formed full thoughts coming out of his mouth just with this like stoicism that is uh that is like almighty and it's it's not very funny it's always quite serious in my mind and we read the bible that way and often we just accept what we've read without going, what the hell did I just read? The other day I read Tina, the, the, the Levite's concubine from Judges 19, I think. Yeah, where a woman, a crazy story. A woman is raped to death, and then her uh, husband, owner, chops her up into 12 pieces and mails her to the heads of the 12 tribes and says, uh, consider, and a priest. consider this and decide amongst yourselves. And so, like, what if what if we were to put ourselves in that story, put yourself in that story and say, what would I do if I got an Amazon package and opened it and it was just a woman's arm and a note yeah. that said, consider this and decide amongst yourselves? Now, I don't know if that would lead me to opt for civil war. That's what it does in the story, and there's a lot to that, and we could take a really serious scholarly approach to that and say why and all the cultural things that go into why that is what happened, and you know, there's very intelligent people out there with a lot of knowledge about the ancient cultures who could help us to have a very serious and academic answer. But we could also take the comedic approach and talk about how shockingly insane that is. Um, you know, and you can you can take that story all the way. So let's say you're the guy that gets the arm in the mail. Let's say you're the guy that's delivering the arm. Let's say you're the guy who's chopping up the lady, like, and you're whistling a song. Well, what song is he whistling? And we can just go on and on and on and find angle after angle after angle to approach this from. And it's like the more silly you get, you're you're building that tension up. And you're, sometimes the the joke is just building the world. There's a fantastic joke by Bill Burr about. Um, he says we're overpopulated, and what he would do is he would start. He would take. He would buy a submarine, and he would start taking out cruise ships. Um, and he he builds this whole. I, he he basically sells the audience the idea of mass murder, but it's he's given you reasons behind it. He's given you method, and he's given you a character to believe. Who, who's capable of it and it's hilarious and it's a brilliant bit but the actual premise of it if we took a cold calculated academic approach to it is horrendous well and I think just to follow your example if you were to tell that story in a comedic way as mm-hmm. absurd as it is it gets to the heart of what the overall story is trying to say that you could still get to through this academic 
way, but probably in a more, in some ways, in a more entertaining way, in that it, um, in fact, even the joke would highlight in its absurdity the truth of the story, which is just how sort of depraved and fallen mm-hmm. these people have become. Like you have this priest chopping up this woman and mailing them. And so in telling the joke and highlighting that contrast and tension, you're, you're exposing the truth of the situation. Here is these people who have been chosen and consecrated, and this is what they've become. And then it ends in them fighting each other, right? Yeah, and I think that comedy, in a way, has the power to offend a certain type of religious person because they're unable to see maybe beyond their own assumptions about their religion. And so I think this is not a great example because I'm not, I don't know it too well, but was there, there was a show that came out recently where Jesus is gay. He's like a gay teenager. Yeah, this sounds, yeah, this sounds familiar. Yeah. Um, so there's people who would like probably go picket over that, like would lose their mind over the premise that Jesus is a gay teenager. So somebody has made a drama, a dramatized television show of uh, the Bible or the gospel story, whichever one. And in it, they have taken the creative license to, to cast Jesus as a gay teenager. So I don't know what else comes of that. I think maybe they smoke weed or they have, he loses virginity or something like that. I don't know what happens, something scandalous, but can we, can we allow ourselves to think through that premise and just let it be, let it exist in our imagination? Um, and what does it do if it offends us and scares us and makes us, um, double down on our, on our own declarations of what's right and wrong, we miss out on something. We, we, we eliminate some imaginative possibilities. But if, if we were to make just story and judges, this concub, this Levite's concubine, into some into like add it into a Mr. Show sketch or something and think about the characters that would walk in on this guy cutting up a lady and the conversation they would have. Like uh, one of the Mr. Show sketches that I love is when they argue about what's the highest number. <laughs> and 24, 24, that's the highest number, 24. And he, and he goes, uh, what is the four, next, next person who says a higher number is going to get shot with my 48. And they all, they're in like a mafia pizzeria den or like a little pasta house or something. But how preposterous is that? And it's hilarious. And we have, and I don't know what the overall meaning of that sketch is, but how long could we sit with it and come to something? But it only, we only get there if we allow ourselves into the imaginative space of a ridiculous mafia feud over what's the highest number. Right. And that, I I think that gets to maybe a problem sometimes Christians have is one, I think we at times uh, take things way, I think, way too liberally because we, B, lack imagination, which is strange for people of faith, and C, we're, we're impatient. <laughs> uh, when you, that story of it reminds me of um, that, I think it's a, it's a picture called... Um, um, his Christ 
I know Piss Christ. Yeah. And it's, it's a picture, uh, the artist made this picture of a, a crucifix in like a, a jar of his own urine and it provoked a ton of controversy. One, I think because I think this is why Mr. Show reminded me of it because, um, it, he got, got, it was sponsored in part by government funding. <laughs> he got a, he got government tax money for it. Um, I love as it. an artist to do it, but um, churches get government um, tax money too, don't they? And then, and then, but and then, of course, Christians were sort of deeply offended. The irony, though, I'm pretty sure is the artist what has was uh, a Catholic um, who didn't really mean any blasphemy or offense by it. And then, or the other thing is, is that if you follow the sort of the imagery and you just sort of were patient enough to look at the picture. So it's this picture of Jesus in urine, which it's a crucifix. Yeah. Which does provoke offense, but then you think about it and you're like, well, the crucifixion is a deeply offensive and shameful form of death. And it would have provoked offense declaring a God who was crucified. Um, you could go further. Like the, the life of Jesus is one in which he wasn't afraid of, you know, defilement. He spent time with not people who would have been deemed to be clean, but spent time with the unclean. And, and so you just, if you do use your imagination and are patient and are, if you engage the imagery, the reality is in that, in that picture, you, you sort of come closer to the reality of the Jesus story than you would in just a crucifix hanging on a wall in a church. Hmm. Right. I have a, I know an artist in Guelph who brought up that story in church at one point and talked about how we can be really offended by piss Christ, or we can see it as an image of Jesus entering into our, like, uh, into the shitty parts of our life. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Jesus is with us even in, even in our piss. And that's like, you know, that, that breaks down the whole, I can't go to that building because if I go in there, I'm in trouble. No, like God is, God is with you and near you right now. And if you have, you know, I think that's where awareness becomes really important. And our job of preaching is about opening people's mind to the possibility of God in all, in all times and all places where, um, if you feel like there's a place you can't go, a church or, you know, something, because God has something against you, like you need to learn that God is close to you right now and that he's, he is ready to hear your, uh, your confession. He is ready to like help you make amends. He's ready to help you grow um, into, into something different. And you don't have to be stuck. Um. So if comedy has the potential for, like, if it has the potential for being able to sort of speak truth, right, and has kind of that, I don't know, evocative power to, to communicate truth, why then 
does Christian comedy fall so flat? I.e., why? <laughs> yeah, this is. I guess this is my opinion. But like, why is it not funny? <laughs> is it because it's not imaginative enough? Is it? Does it not take risk? Is it? And this probably gets into a discussion whenever you put the adjective Christian in front of anything. Does it rob the thing it's being placed in front of? <laughs> yeah, I have, I have a few thoughts on this. I have a few thoughts Lay on this. On me. I think one of the reasons why it falls flat for a wider audience is a ton of people who love Christian comedy. ton of people. It's a whole industry. Um, but I think... And maybe because they put Christian in front of it or holy, holy laughter tour or, um, you know, whatever they're going to put, maybe that turns off a lot of people who don't, who could care less. If you just called it a comedy show, would you get more people coming out instead of saying it's Christian comedy? But I think anything you put Christian in front of, you've just, you've just basically aligned yourself with a, with a, a market, Right. Um, you like a Christian bookstore, like, well, chapters has all those books or Indigo has all those books. Amazon has all those books. Like, is it, what is it? Um, when you're exclusively a Christian thing, you're just marketing to people who go to church. Um, the other thing about quote unquote Christian comedy is, something that's not particularly Christian, but you have a like Jerry Seinfeld is a clean comedian. He performs clean, meaning he doesn't yeah. profanity is not a part of his act. Um, he has different ways of expressing anger and surprise and pain than profanity. And that also means that, um, he's not going to talk about his first blowjob. Right. Right. And when you are allowed to talk about a blowjob, you that's that's something that like is going to make people that 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 increases tension in the room because it's not something that we talk about publicly very often um sex sexual intercourse sexual activities like blowjobs hand jobs other kind of jobs foot jobs all those things that we don't talk about publicly and all of a sudden the guy on the stage is talking about this thing that nobody wants to talk about and he's talking about it a lot and he's talking about it loudly and he's talking and he's building tension, tension, tension. And then there's a, you know, whatever, whatever the punchline is, a burglar came in and it changes the situation, like whatever, whatever it could be. So the Christian comedy thing will omit a whole lot of real life content. And so I think that what happens is it falls into a, I shouldn't say it falls into a trap, but I think tropes, there's a lot of tropes in Christian comedy um, right. where it's like, oh, okay, you have ki- like, I, I, like talking about your kids, talking about your, your marriage, talking about your, your funny youth pastor or your pastor or, and you know what? Like this just goes to show like I'm that ignorant of Christian comedy. I've basically like, I don't go, I don't go looking for Christian comedy and ultimately you can like put somebody in front of me who doesn't have to be, be called a Christian comic for me to like get what they're talking about. You know what I mean? Like, um, you can, you can be a Christian and be a comedian and perform clean and be funny 
and not have to call yourself a Christian comic. And I think when you fall into that Christian comic thing, you're going to try and appeal to that like churchy, more more often than not conservative evangelical crowd. And I, I, w- yeah. I wonder if it, what you just said made, made me think of something. I wonder if part of it is because you talked about raising the tension in the room with the audience. And one of the ways to do that is um, through a, a type of offense or, or at least talking about things that are taboo or risque. And, um, but I don't think, like, I don't think Christian comedy really does that. It's not like, it's not going to, it doesn't really, I don't think it really raises the tension in the room because what's the most shocking or offensive thing a Christian comic is going to say, do you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. they're not even going to, to, to use profanity maybe that's the maybe that would be the most risque thing they would they would do and maybe yeah i'm just thinking they wouldn't really like for example they wouldn't say anything you know in making you know making observations about the youth pastor it's not really going to be that offensive you know what i mean like that's what i'm they're not they're not really roasting anybody no no I think like it's silliness is another piece, right? So there's a certain level of silliness that you have to be okay with in comedy. Um, cause you're going to get a premise that's quite silly. And for the staunch and serious person, you know, maybe they're able to get there, but for others, no. And I think sometimes, I don't know. I don't want to say, I, I don't want to keep going on about Christian comedy, quote unquote, because, I'm not as well versed in it as I am with uh, um, secular comedy. It's secular. Well, right, I mean, right there, it, it, there's it's sort of like there's a weird distinction that's been made, right? Mm-hmm. Is it, uh, I because what I'm thinking now is sort of like we're talking about Christian comedy and secular comedy, and then you're sort of like, well, if something's funny, isn't it just comedy? <laughs> right. Yeah. And that's, yeah, and it's, and, so. and the, the other thing is like, that's, it's never going to be funny to everybody. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's another challenge of comedy. And, um, Jerry Seinfeld did sort of get questioned on this about, uh, actually it wasn't Jerry Seinfeld. Who was it? Joe Rogan and somebody else, another comic talked about, um, Jerry Seinfeld's comment of like, what I look for is funny. Is it funny? And for some people, a joke about sexual assault is funny. For other people, it's horrendous and disgusting. Right. And both responses are valid. And what the, what the challenge becomes is when only one of the responses is validated. Right. So I've, I took offense at your joke because I'm a survivor of sexual violence and I think you're making light of a subject that you shouldn't make light of. Well, some comics would say we, everything is on the table in comedy. And if you're not ready for that, literally anything coming out, then don't come to the show. Joe Rogan, I went and saw him live and he's got a sign outside his, 
shows. Um, I'll see if I can find it. But it basically says, Joe Rogan's comedy show will contain the most offensive and outrageous language imaginable. Um, like, it, it's a warning on the on the outside of the theater door. Here, I've got it here. It says, warning, Joe Rogan's comedy show will contain the strongest language and material content imaginable. This show is for mature audiences. And so, like, it says it right there on the window. If you... If you can imagine something that's going to be uh, offensive to you, it's pro- I'll probably say it. And if if that's what you're going, if you're unable to hear that, um, and and enjoy it in the moment, then don't come to the show. And and that's becoming a, 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 a complex conversation. And there's clubs where. Like I've performed places where if you were to joke, if, if, if somebody being gay, and this is like, this is tasteless anyway, but if somebody being gay is your critique of them in your set, or if you're making fun of transgender people, or if you're um, making fun of women or rape, they will just cut off, they'll cut the microphone. They'll just cut off the microphone, turn off the lights, and they'll get you off the stage. And then they won't let you come back. They they just can say no thanks. Don't we don't want you here anymore. And and this is this is a good thing. I think. Well, I don't know if it's a good thing. How how does the comedy world feel about censorship? Right. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's what I mean. That's why I don't know if it's a good, it's a good thing because there there there's spaces created for people who, um, I don't know, quote unquote safe spaces, I guess, but. Um, I guess especially if they've been traditionally marginalized or disenfranchised. It's sort of like, are you, are you, you know, there's something to be said about, um, making fun of, but then making fun of in the way of like, are you sort of kicking the lowest of the low? You know what I mean? Like, are you, are you punching up or are you punching down? Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, For, I mean, one thing I can tell you firsthand, though, is like in a place like that, there are still hours and hours and hours of hilarious material, and none of it is targeting minority groups that are traditionally oppressed. Like, and I was, I was just going to ask: Isn't the, you know, the 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 act of censorship, say by a comedy club, um. Isn't that then like, isn't within comedy, there is already a built in mechanism in that, like Jerry Seinfeld said, in a way, it's either the audience will either funny, find it funny or they won't. Mm -hmm. So if the audience is offended and they don't like it, they can not applaud or they can boo or even worse, they can. Heck, right? Like, there's, yeah. isn't there a built-in mechanism to address that? If rather than, I, you know, I guess historically that's what would have happened. Rather than just turning off the mic, and, mm-hmm. yeah. I think one of the things you 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 got me thinking about was with that discussion of the Joe Rogan sign is that people. I guess people, if you're going to a comedy club, to a certain extent, you're willing to take the risk of being offended in order to, you know, laugh, 
and have a good time, right? So there's kind of that implicit bargain that's been made. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're extending more freedom, more of a willingness there to whoever's presenting. Whereas like in the act of preaching, I wonder if that's there in the audience in the sense of like, like there are times where preaching um, should be in some ways offensive, at least within the story that we tell. Like, for example, Good Friday, the story of Jesus's death on a cross, um, at least 2000 years ago would have been an offensive story, right? Mm. And so the audience would have come, you know, being exposed to that truth in that offense. But I don't know if people come to church (laughs) today. I I think I think it's safe to say they don't come willing to risk being offended, let alone even being disagreed with necessarily. And maybe that's the big difference between the two audiences. Like, I think people come to church on Sunday basically expecting to have their viewpoints validated whereas if anything the preacher at times is there to I don't want to say all the time because I think you would just be a jerk if you did it all the time but I think part of the job of a preacher is to in some ways I, I think we're always confronting the audience with truth so sometimes that truth will be will be welcoming and inspiring and hopeful, and other times that truth will, in some ways, be shocking, offensive. Uh, it'll cause disagreement. But I, I was just thinking with that, Joe. We should have a sign like that. <laughs> Not necessarily exactly the same, but sometimes I wonder if churches should put a sign out front saying, you know. If you're um, a blue conservative, you're going to be challenged and uh, offended sometimes by the preaching here. Mm. And you could flip that around. If you're if you love the NDP or are a red liberal, there are times where the preaching here will challenge and offend you. Do you know what I mean? Um, yeah. But I don't think I don't think our I think a comedy audience goes in sort of somewhat expecting that, but a, a church audience doesn't, and and maybe they should. Hmm. I think. Hmm. That's interesting. I'm trying to think of, I don't want to typecast or, or make a type out of the person who does get offended. Because part of it is, you know, you don't know what's going to be offensive to people, to specific people until they're offended. And I, one time, uh, someone I know had was wearing a pin I didn't know her that well. She was, she worked at the school I was at and she had a button on her jacket that said, um, I got my flu shot. Do you have yours or something, something like that? And I, and I thought the button was a little bit like, uh, I don't know. I didn't like the button. It offended me. Let's say, 
it was it was too i didn't like that it was about like i did it did you do it i didn't like that um so I kind of said, I kind of like, you know, I had a good rapport with this person and I kind of made a, a comment about the button and she stopped and turned around and she said, um, I did get my flu shot, uh, last year, my friend's dad died of the flu. So it's not a joke. And then she kind of stormed off and I, I felt like a total ass because I had no idea that she was wearing this button out of a place of like with a sense of any kind of grief. Right. And I had kind of stomped on her grief and um, maybe even without realizing it was trying to make her feel silly about wearing a button about something that she thought was important. Um, but I don't think we can always validate everybody and think what everybody thinks is important is important to us. And... I'll tell you that when she said that to me, I mean, I, I'm, I'm still embarrassed by it, but I was embarrassed because I, I was wrong. I shouldn't have, I, w- I was wrong because I, uh, because of how it made her feel. I still think it's a dumb button, but I never meant to, I never meant to, uh, dismiss her friend's dad's death. Like that's not what I was trying to do. I just thought it was a, a bit of a self-righteous little button she was wearing. Well, and that, I think that maybe gets to, um, maybe in the act of preaching, it should never be about targeting one group. Mm-hmm. So, like, you could obviously craft a sermon in which you make a certain outlook on the world, whether, you know, let's say, you know, a conservative ethic and outlook on the world. You could craft a sermon sort of targeting that. And then, you know, half the room would leave, you know, feeling self-righteous and patting themselves on the back saying, oh boy, I'm glad I'm not like that. And the other group feeling their backs against the wall and judged and offended. And, um, so whereas, whereas maybe you just, you, you just are setting out to proclaim something, um, about God that is true and in some ways the chips just fall where they may I think sometimes we as preachers can really fall into the trap of not willing to take risk or even offend and can even tailor things so that uh, almost too much so that like it's like everyone like we're, we're people like what we're saying because it's just validating their own outwork out um outlooks and opinions right mm-hmm. that maybe aren't necessarily uh reflective of what god thinks well i've tried to take on the i i, I, I a few things there's like there's offense you know and then there's challenge right i think a sermon can be challenging without being offensive um, and it can, it can still be truthful without being offensive, but rather challenging, you know, where, huh, okay, you've revealed a blind spot in me that I wasn't aware of or right. didn't really know what to do about, but you've, you've given me 
you've, you've shown me God in such a way that I can, that I now know how to trust God with this piece of my life. Right. Um, and can do so more and more, but you know, we're, we're all on this like day by day, step by step journey of discipleship, meaning like we're trying more and more to be conformed to a way that honors God. And part of the challenge there will always be the subjectivity that exists within Christianity. Meaning, yes, we have orthodoxy, but as you're here talking, you're talking about like if you have a conservative worldview viewpoint that you're putting out, and but then you have another person in another church who's got the liberal worldview viewpoint that they're putting out. They're both Christian, but they're both like opposite. So marriage is a great example where, um, you know, LGBTQ marriages, where you have Christians on both sides of the fence. You have Christians on different sides, like who would say your baptism, like how is a baptism supposed to be performed? How is communion supposed to happen? Who is allowed to take communion? Um, what do we do with divorced people? Should women be allowed to preach? And on every side of these debates, you have Christians. And it, I think it, it kind of, I don't know where I'm trying to go with this, but um, I think it's easy for people to just land in a place where, you know, their view of communion is upheld at the church. They don't have to, they don't really have to wrestle with what does communion mean because their church does it the way they want it to be done. And that's why they go to that church because they have a closed table or they have an open table or they do it virtually or whatever it is. And so I think as, as people, if we're only looking to be a part of things that validate me and my opinion and my view, however informed or ill-informed that may be, like we're always going to get stuck somewhere where we don't have to grow, we don't have to change, we don't have to be challenged, we don't have to consider new ideas, we don't have to get into dialogue with people, and so we can just come and go. But if you were in a space where, like if... if if, if on Sunday when we had a regular, when we, if we were in the before time and we had a Sunday service where um, I, you know, read a quote or had a message and like dropped an F-bomb in the middle of it, like what would happen during coffee time? What, what would happen to the community and in the community as an as a result of that word being used or as a result of if I were to come out and say so we're part of an Anabaptist church which is traditionally nonviolent non-resistance we don't go to war but if I came out and said I think we should go to war with the United States of America because of something somebody did and then made an argument for just war like, what would that do at, in, in the community? Would people talk and consider it? Would, do we, or are we just reserved to say, no, we already know the answer. We don't have to talk about it. We don't have to wrestle with it. Um, yeah, or, mm-hmm. or are there certain things that the community says, um, 
are fixed points and we never are static, if you will, and we never talk about those. But then we have other things that we're more than willing to change. Do you know what I mean? Like we can easily, especially Mennonites, we'll pick and choose that, right? Right. And some of them are they're, we're too afraid. There's, it's too dangerous. Like so, if you if we wanted to get into like the historical Jesus studies, so I just started this Marcus Borg book this morning. I read it with my coffee, and he's going to talk about the historical Jesus and his life before his death. And you've mentioned before about um, you just had it in a sermon two weeks ago about if like the resurrection is literally true. All right, I I hear you, Mike. I'm I'm hearing that. But what if we had what if we opened up the discussion? Like, I'm just, I'm not saying we have to, I'm just saying what would happen if we really had, had our people work on, work on those kind of things themselves, where if the opposite were to come out, where we had somebody, a guest come in and talk about how the resurrection of Jesus is symbolic and it's, it's a narrative tool used to evoke some sort of something in us so that we know that when something in our life dies, there's resurrection. That, that something new will always come of it. And that is, you know, that is a kind of a natural principle of the world of, of existence. Something dies and something takes its place. Um, and now we learn that if we go into the person, you know, ideas can die and dreams can die and plans can die. And what happens when they die? What happens when biases die or racism dies? Can new things take its place? So we do see death in a non-physical way. In, in the mental space, in the, in the emotional space. Um, but what would it look like for a congregation to get into small groups and talk about what does it mean if the resurrection didn't really happen? And I say didn't really happen, and that's like an epistemological way of knowing, right? Where, yeah. we, it, like, and we could talk about that too, is like, what do we mean by really? What do we mean by we know? What do we mean by faith? What do we mean by well, any of these things? Or, or in doing that, you might come to realize, you, like I said in, in the sermon, I said, you might come to realize, like, well, gee, there's not much. Why am I here? Totally. <laughs> you Right? Like, if you engage that process, which initially could be offensive and you have your back up against the wall, you might value why you do believe in, like, no, the resurrection happened because... Frankly, if it's just a symbol, like I said in the sermon, well, what what the hell's the point then? Yeah, or you might get to the point of going, for me, how much stock can I put in a symbol? Right, right, yes. Yeah, absolutely. And you might come out more faithful than than before because you removed a a stumbling block. Mm -hmm. And, and maybe that's not, and I'm not saying this is the, I'm not saying this is what we're supposed to do, but I'm just saying like where, it, what could happen. Um, and there are, there, I know there are people who would slam their head against a wall if they heard this, because it, it would infuriate them that a pastor would say such a thing, that we could not have the resurrection and people could come out more faithful. People that that's killing somebody right now that I said that, um, and I don't know, Kanye, I'm going to talk about Kanye West for a second, but we, we got to wrap up here soon. Kanye West on his, um, what's the album called? I forget what the album's called now, but on the cover of the album, I have the internet, I can look it up. On the cover of the album, it's the one where he says, uh, 
I hate being I hate being bipolar. It's awesome. And the first song is about. He says, today I thought about killing you. And he just kind of repeats that over and over again. And it's about um, just saying the thought that's on his mind. And today I thought about killing you. I thought about murder. I thought about it. I really did. I really thought about it. And now I'm saying it. And people who were really shocked by that song... He, he would retort, I think the album is called Yay, Y-E, yeah, Y-E, Yay. And the, the song is called I Thought About Killing You. And he does, it's not even, he's not even rhyming on it. He's just talking. Today I thought about killing you. And it's like, what is the mind capable of? Is, and it's capable of going to that place. It's capable of going to the place of violence against another person. And once you know that, though, then you have to begin to ask questions about that. How did I get here? Why did I think about killing this person? Is it connected to an event? Is it something I could actually do? Am I planning it? What is this? And, and this is, these are things that you want to work out probably in a safe place, like probably with a therapist or probably with somebody you love and trust who's not going to freak out. Um, but all I'm trying to say is what he he basically just allows a thought experiment to happen, um, whether there's any weight behind it or not. He allows the thought experiment to take place and makes it public, you know, in a in a way that I mean, because he's Kanye West and he's mixed up with celebrity, we might not see it this way. But if another person were to do that, it's it's really kind of like an, it's a real edge for a lot of us. We don't really want to think about those kind of things. We don't want to think about the dark parts. We don't want to think about the evil that's within each of us or not that, not that is within each of us, but that is, that is potentially, you know, you, you have the saint and sinner paradigm that you often put a lot of things through. But, um, the other one would be like the Sufjan Stevens song about John Wayne Gacy, where he starts singing about they pulled up all his floorboards and they found people under his floors. At the end of the song, he goes, and if you pull up all my floorboards, you'll find that I'm just like him. But he's talking about in his heart. He's not talking, he's not talking, not talking about his basement. He's talking about in, his, in himself. And I have everything in me that the serial killer has in them. And it's terrible. I don't want to think, I don't even like thinking about it right now, but if we pretend we don't, and if we pretend, it's kind of like where we started this, where you're bringing out these news articles of terrible things that happen in the world. Oh, I was just going to say, it's, it's actually pretty good sort of theological reflection. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. It's all there. Gacy was also a clown. He was, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the, that he is right above ventriloquists in the... I don't know if it's ventriloquist clown prop comic or what, but I will say this as a disclaimer that uh, any ventriloquist clown or prop comic whose name I know is way more successful than I'll probably ever be. <laughs> what about, you said if, if prop comedy could, to bring this full circle, if prop comedy could potentially come back, what about clowning? Like, I haven't seen a clown... Has there, there hasn't been a clown on TV since like the 50s. What about the movie It? 
Well, I was just going to say, so like... Clowns have reinvented themselves. The Joker. Clowns, clown, clowns culturally now are figures of not sort of mockery and laughing at, but like are villains and scary. Mm-hmm. There's a whole, there's a whole like, paper right there. That's all we have to discuss. We never did discuss your sermon. We're going to have to do this again. Yeah. <laughs> all that right. That was a long, it was good though. Good chat, man. Yeah, good chat. What do you got for the rest of the day? Um, just a little more work and then um, we're going to do that birthday oh, uh, yeah. dr- drive-by thing at, I think at four. Is that at four? It's at four. Oh, so that'll be soon. So we're going to do that. Yeah, I'm doing that too. How old is the kid? Uh, five. Okay. We'll throw five. Just five. leave. Just, <laughs> it'd be funny if um, you drove out there with Paxton and just left him there. <laughs> but like, hey, <laughs> you'd ruin that kid's birthday because you'd have to go back and get the dog. Look, I brought you a dog. The parents would be upset mm-hmm. for two reasons. You left a dog. Mm-hmm. Like, what are we going to do with this dog? And then they'd be even angrier when their kid cried when you'd go to pick up the dog in an hour. See, you think that's funny. I think that's offensive because <laughs> I love my dog. <laughs> it, is, it is funny. <laughs> All right. I'll talk to you later. See you later. Bye. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening to us from wherever you are in the world right now. We hope that you're safe. We hope that you're doing well. And we hope that you're finding things that uh, make you laugh and make you think. Until next time, we'll see you later on The Great Indoors.